May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I well remember one of the hallmarks of my father's parenting style, which I both appreciated and at times wished was a bit more directive. His style was to often say when asked a question about whether or not I could stay out later than normal to perhaps join some friends at a party, dad would just respond with, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> As I came to the last few years of high school, that would, that permission giving would even extend to asking to take off a day from school now and again. Let your conscience be your guide. That one, fortunately, was a little easier to figure out because all I had to do was think, how pleased was dad with my last report card and how pleased will, be, will he be with the next one? That was a little easier needle to thread. Inevitably, I knew what his preferences were. After all, I knew his expectations around school and my responsibility as a member of the family. I knew the rules of the house. I knew that if he said dinner was at 6 p.m., or that I was to be home by 10 p.m., it meant that I was to be home no later than 5.45, so I could be washed and appropriately dressed for dinner. Some of us may remember the days when it was expected that we were appropriately dressed for dinner. And if it was bedtime, make sure you're home by 9.45, so you can appropriately get ready for bed and get a good night's sleep before school. I knew that if I didn't get a direct yes to my request, then he was giving me the freedom to choose and thereby bear the consequences that may come. If I decided to stay out later than normal and did not get up in time for school, or in my haste to go out, I forgot to do my chores, then I would be the one responsible for the resulting consequences which, with my father, were really never very harsh. My stepmother, on the other hand, whose displeasure could last for days or even weeks, depending on the, her opinion regarding the severity of the infraction. But somehow, we muddled through as a family. Based on our epistle reading today, it does seem that the Apostle Paul and my dad had a similar trust in the power of one's conscience to guide us on the right path. Let your conscience be your guide. Except in Paul's case, as Paul is wont to do, he adds another layer, a complicated layer. Take care, he says, take care that your liberty does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, as we just heard read. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, 
eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, and by extension, by your clear conscience, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. When you sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, which is weak, you sin against Christ. Thank you, St. Paul. That means that not only must I let my conscience be my guide, but now apparently I must let your conscience be my guide. So can I go to the casino out at Lincoln City after church and, yeah, whatever. <laughs> let my conscience be my guide and my pocketbook. Apparently, your conscience, even more than my own, is what I need to consider. But that hardly seems fair. So let's see if we can unpack this admonition from Paul and see if 2,000 years later it still retains any merit worth consideration. Now the good thing is, and it will certainly be a great help to the task of the sermon, is we really don't need to unpack the morality of any of us eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. We can leave that debate back 2,000 years ago where it had some relevance. Conscience is such a tricky thing, isn't it? Its origins in classical Greek and pre-Christian philosophy focused on the individual's capacity to look back at a former action and make it determine as to whether that action was beneficial or injurious to one's well-being. That determination then would help inform the appropriateness or inappropriateness of a proposed action or a particular decision. Conscience, synderesis in the Greek, had to do with knowledge. There's no overlay of morality. Knowledge, like the small child being told repeatedly not to touch the fireplace screen because they will get burned. And one day, when they think that no one is looking, they touch the screen in front of that happily dancing fire, and they learn. They now have knowledge, experiential knowledge. Knowledge that tells them, don't do that again. No matter how pretty the fire is, look, don't touch. But there's no morality to that admonition. If you don't want to feel pain, don't touch the screen. Now, I know there's parental layers wrapped in there as well, but you get the drift. Yet, as tends to happen, words and concepts evolve over time, and so did Cinderella. So by the time we get to Jesus and Seneca, who are actually contemporaries of each other, though they didn't know one another, Cinderella's conscience was now something that was to guide our right moral action. Our consciences weren't just about knowledge. It was about right moral action. It was this meaning of the word 
that some in the church of Corinth were using to justify not only eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols, that was now available to be purchased in the markets to help fund the temple. You might think about opening it in a grocery store. I don't know, it might be some way. They can do some sacrificing along the way, Nathan. See what comes of it. But that's what they did then. The sacrifices were too plentiful. So to gain funds for the temple and the maintenance of the temple, they sold the meat at the market, usually at a reduced rate. And good Christian people, those who'd once been pagan, would buy it up and eat it. But others said, but it's been offered to an idol. It's tainted meat. And others said, no, not at all. It's just meat. Paul even agrees with them in verse 4, which wasn't included in our lesson today. He says, we know that no idol in the world really exists. So how can we sacrifice meat to an idol? It's just emptiness. There is no God but one. And so it is with the Corinthian church and Paul's letter back to them regarding this concept of the moralness of the morality of eating such meat that had been sacrificed that conscience, moral conscience, enters Christian moral theology. And while it may be difficult at times to explain, even to ourselves, we know what it means to have a clear conscience, and most certainly we know what it means to have a guilty conscience, probably more often than we would like to admit. It is, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, conscience is that which, that which, is, that which is within us, witnessing what we do and don't do, legislating about what we should and shouldn't do, and defending or accusing us when we have or haven't done well. There's no escaping it, not based on today's reading. There's no escaping it. There's no escaping our conscience or how it relates to my actions or inactions and how those actions or inactions relate to you and vice versa. One of the most insidious and often unacknowledged hindrances to our life of faith is the privatization of that faith. The belief that my spiritual life is my own business and it is no concern of yours. You mind your spiritual life and I will mind mine. Don't tell me what to do. Don't criticize me. In fact, we can get even more spiritual. Don't judge me. Because Jesus says, quite clearly, thou shalt not judge. We're not talking about judgment with conscience. And our spiritual life, well, it isn't our private possession. Because our spiritual life cannot exist without community. That's not how we were created to be in the spiritual realm, and that's not how we were created to be in the physical realm. Psychologists, social scientists, and philosophers are near universal in agreeing that after food, water, and shelter, belonging is our greatest need. Without it, we will not only not thrive, we will not survive. 
Therefore, we must recognize and acknowledge that our actions, as well as our attitudes, our worldviews, the ways in which we comport ourselves at home, at work, at the grocery store, and even in the polling booth, all have ripple effects to those around us. Well, Paul agrees with the Corinthian faction that sees no moral harm in eating food that has been sacrificed to idols, or attending civic events in a pagan temple, which is quite common. He reminds them that their liberty has become a stumbling block to others in the church, that their liberty is hindering the spiritual formation and maturity of their sisters and brothers in Christ. Perhaps one of the most readily available contemporary examples of this is when someone we care about is in the early stages of recovering from an addiction, perhaps alcoholism, and out of the goodness of your heart, to help celebrate their one week without alcohol, you invite them to dinner and order a cocktail before dinner, followed by a glass of wine. They'll just have soft drinks. Now, even if the friend doesn't leave that dinner and go out on a bender, their recovery is still so fresh, so weak, to use Paul's words. So weak is their conscience that I cannot help but suspect that all that craving for that old life that they are trying so desperately to escape has not come flooding back. Even if they never take a drink, I've set up a stumbling block for them to stumble over. Paul's injunction in such a scenario is clear. When you thus sin against members of your family, you wound their conscience when it is weak. When you wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if eating meat is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so I may not cause one of them to fall. Now remember, we're Anglicans and we're not literalists, and we can appreciate the hyperbole that Paul brings, so Paul did not at this moment become a vegetarian for life. But you get the point. If you know something, something that you feel you have the liberty to do in your life, your spiritual life, in your marriage, in your family, in your work, and yet you know those who look to you, and people do look to us, not just those of us who get to sit up here, but they look to us. We have a responsibility to them, and they to us. As I said before, conscience is a messy thing, as is a spiritual life. A clear conscience is no guarantee of being right, and a guilty conscience is no guarantee of being wrong. Conscience is only one aspect of our moral, spiritual, and physical well-being. And so while I may be free to do something, as Paul goes on to write in chapter 10, it may not be beneficial to those around me. Something may indeed be, in Paul's words, lawful for me to do, but not all lawful things build up. Therefore, quoting Paul one last time, let us not seek our own, 
but let us seek each one another's well-being. In humility, let us consider others better than ourselves. From my experience, when you and I can do that, we are the better for it, as is the Church. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.